a lot of people are going to like it. A lot of people are going to dig it if it's genuine and it's coming straight from your heart. Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, where musicians go to learn how to navigate the new music economy. My name's Adam Meckler, and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career in music. And to that end, we've got an app called Gig Boss that's free on iOS and Android. It's a way for you to create groups, create events, check out your scrolling chronological feed of gigs, click on a square, see all the details, click on a phone number, text or call, click on an address, pull up Uber, Lyft, it's sweet, and lots more is coming. Today, I'm talking with Caroline Davis, uh, who's become a friend over the years. She came out to Michigan Technological University, where I run the jazz program, and she was the guest artist for us last spring. And back then, I was thinking, man, I got to get her on the podcast, but it was a busy stretch, and we didn't do it. And recently, we teamed up and did a show in Madison with my new trio, Supercell, and her band, My Tree. And it was a great show. It was awesome to hear My Tree, something completely different than what I was really familiar with in Caroline's music. I really kind of fell in love with her saxophone music, uh, her sort of modern jazz stuff, um, reaching back to her Heart Tonic album, which we didn't talk about a lot, but it's a really amazing record. It's been super influential on me. And we talked a little bit about her new record, Portals, and how she funds her albums, a little bit about gender in music, and this is just an awesome conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Oh, thanks for wearing the Maitri shirt. Yeah, I was gonna say I got my, I got my Maitri shirt on. I was ready. That's I actually awesome. like reached for it this morning, and then I went, "Oh yeah, I'm talking to Caroline." So, so cool. perfect. It was it was a natural. We're reaching for the, the Maitri shirt. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing you guys in Madison. That was super fun. That was such a fun show in general. I loved, I loved your set. It was so good, and all the stories you shared with everyone. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It's, uh, we've got a record coming out December second that we recorded in Chicago. We just Where was that? recorded a set. It was at uh, Luke Polipnik's place. Oh, cool. You know Luke, the guitar player. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know he had a recording spot though. That's really cool. He doesn't. It. It, it was what we did was he has like an apartment that used to be a corner store in Chicago and he just like cleared out his living room and we put a backdrop and put the band in the living room. And then we put chairs and couches around and we had like a bar and we had a dude that was like selling a bunch of cannabis items. And so there was like some vendors there and then there was a bunch of our friends and family, you know, hanging out for the session. Yeah. So it was filmed and you know, we're trying to figure out, which singles to release and all that stuff now and writing press copy, you know, all the fun stuff. That's cool. Live recording. Yeah. So live recording. We just recorded another set in Minneapolis on the last run, the run that we teamed up with you guys in Madison on. Nice. I guess we're going, how, how did my tree like, so, so for me, like I found you through your album, Heart Tonic, somebody in Minneapolis was like, you should really check this out. It's got, Marquis Hill on it and Caroline is amazing and I was like okay and I started listening to it and I really just like fell in love with your music and I slept on portals way too long PS I've been listening to that a bunch it's so great so like to me like that stuff and my tree is like that's pretty too pretty like the seemingly the only two things that are the same are that like you were one of the artists responsible for making those things so like what's how did my tree come about 
and uh is your approach different there than it is with your other stuff yeah i was living in chicago and you know as you know i was living in chicago for eight years and during that time i moved there with my with my partner at the time and at the moment that i was starting to feel like i wanted to write lyrics and songs i started feeling like i didn't want to be in that relationship anymore oh wow (laughs) and it was really a part of that the beginning of that band and the beginning of the feelings that i was having and it was also part of me reading this book by Pema Chodron, which I'm sure you've heard about and many people have heard about, which is called When Things Fall Apart. Yeah, I have. I, you know, I haven't read that. I, I'm going to write that down. So. Oh, yeah. I'm. It's like one of those books that I just keep coming back to because, you know, things just fall apart a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so just learning how to traverse the landscape. And she wrote about the concept of Maitri in her book. And that's a Sanskrit word that just means loving, loving yourself enough so that you can also feel the love from other people and which that we all struggle with, but, um, so useful to relationships. And I think that I was really going through it and I needed to learn how to love myself better (laughs) through these songs. So I wrote, I started writing these lyrics and I'm like, well, I can't really sing. (laughs) So I was, which is not true. I did this gig with Rob Clearfield duo and he was just so nice. He, he was so down like, yeah, I'll sing your, I'll, I'll uh, play your songs while you sing your songs. And we played at this bar, the Serbian cultural center. And I played this little 20 minute set and this guy who I'm sure you know of this dancer, Charles Joseph Smith, hmm. he came, he's, he's this wonderful musician and artist and, human being who comes to all the shows in Chicago and he came to the show and he was dancing. And at one point, all of one point he kicked over Rob's music stand. And then he also, he was dancing. And so, and then another point, all this change started falling out of his pocket. (laughs) It's like the whole thing. And that was my first, my tree gig. And so just all the memories of that Mm. (laughs) coupled with the, you know, sort of my, the issues I was going through and trying to find myself again that that's how the band came about and rob clearfield played in that iteration with charles rumback and matt eulery it was a very different band back yeah, then yeah wow my friend neek who's a wonderful rapper mc in chicago i was working i met him at a jam session around the corner from where i lived and i was like i would really love to work with you on anything you need saxophone on i'll play on it and so i started doing stuff for him and he did a couple songs on that first record yeah. which I just put out by myself. And then when I moved to New York, Ben was interested in continuing that project with me. And so then we started writing songs together and that's where we are now. Yeah. Cool. It's great stuff. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I You sort of alluded to this, but I wonder if there was some kind of mental barrier that you had moving from, because you're such a prolific saxophonist and composer moving to, to singing essentially like, and I, I think a lot of, you know, you don't have yourself listed as a singer in your bio on your website. You know, there's like certain things. It's like, is that purposeful that you left that out? It, did did you have to, did you have to go through a process where you were like, okay, I can I can do this and this, and it's still me, and I feel whatever. I don't know. Like I'm yeah. expressing myself the way I want need to. That's so interesting. And I had this conversation with my students the other day in the jazz and gender class um, at the new school. We were talking about Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters mm-hmm. and how she was 
an incredible drummer. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. And yeah. like you look her up on Google and it doesn't say drummer, it says singer. Yeah. And so I was just thinking about that with respect to myself. And I was literally just thinking about this. I'm glad you brought it up. But I, yeah, I don't put that in my bio and I should because it's something that I take so seriously and I practice singing yep. so much. And it's such a part of my my vision for me as an artist, but I should start to do that more and incorporate me saying that. And I think it's been also like when I show up to a gig, like I literally showed up to a gig the other night, Sunday, and the sound person was like, so I'm assuming you'll need a mic for singing. And I'm like, I'm playing saxophone. And I, that happens to me all the time. And it's, I think that it's very much tied to my gender, although yep. I don't want to believe that, yep. but I think it is. And then, so I have this sort of block, as you said, and it's a weird, it's this weird thing, but I do really work on singing. And so I, and I should be super, you know, I am very proud of that. So I should be like public and putting it in my, yeah. But there is a stereotype in there and there are assumptions made and, you know, we need more f women instrumentalists on the scene. And I, f I feel like that's something that we need to cultivate at, you know, starting at the high school level, just like cultivating more female identifying musicians, getting them in positions of power, encouraging, you know, it's like because we have such a drop off between, I mean, even between high school and college, I was just talking about this with somebody because I do a lot of guest artist gigs at high schools and almost every high school I go to, it's like 50% of the band are female identifying. And then you get to the college level and there's this huge drop off. And then when you get to the professional level, obviously there's so many amazing female artists in the world, uh, but there's this drop off, you know, and I don't know if there's, I feel like that part of that falls on the educators. Yeah. I, w I really struggle to understand why that is. The data definitely shows there's a drop off. Absolutely. At a certain age. And it's, it's really, Something I think could be important too is talk is talking to, I mean, I hate the word girls, but talk, let's talk to young girls, you know, let's talk to them and see what it is about the, the vibe that makes them want to quit, I guess. Yeah. Cause there are, I mean, there is a large group of younger girls who take an interest in the music and then something happens. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. And I don't even know if I have enough, levity to say that so uh, but i do know that it's shown in you know quantitative numbers that that happens so you're totally right and yeah. i wonder what that's all about because i see programs making a difference and trying to make the the teachers a more equitable you know group of people so yeah and that's, and that's when you that's see yourself in it right then yeah. then you then you're more likely to hang in there yeah uh, too exactly. as a representation you know it's just like as a basic general rule it's like let's get more yeah people represented in the education system mm -hmm. um, yeah i think it's important to teach the young ones that there were people who identified as women or people i was just talking about gladys bentley who it was this performer back during the harlem renaissance and langston hughes used to go and see her perform all the time hmm. And she used to wear like men's clothing and she wasn't trying to convince anyone that she was a man. She just, she made fun of high culture. She was a performer, you know, and she had enough money to live on park Avenue, $300 a month. And wow. she was really successful. She recorded for okay records and she toured all over the place. 
and she was made fun of because of her cross-dressing or whatever you want to call it. Yep. She, and she might have identified as non-binary, you know, if she were living today. I don't know. That's yeah. presupposing something. But, you know, she was like doing her thing. And then at some point she re- appeared on the Groucho Mark show in this very feminine dress. And she she wrote a she wrote an article for Ebony magazine saying I've been cured like I'm a woman again. That's what the article said. Whoa. Yeah, and it's it's insane because yeah, she was a jazz musician and she was a performer and in this music and we don't know about her, but there was this moment in time I don't know what happened, but obviously something happened. She either felt so eschewed from the community that she changed and went back. And she was like, I even took hormones. And like, it was, it was deep. If you read the Ebony article, I mean, it's, it's very deep what happens to people. It's almost similar to this situation with this documentary where these people have been cured of their gayness. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say, like, I went to Bethel for a year in Minneapolis and there was talk of like, if you felt like you were gay, like you should be in counseling and you should be, you know, it's like, geez. Yeah. Anyway, so I think it's important to talk about those people who are always around, but we just don't know about them um, to the young ones, you know, that they're they were out. They were there. And it's not just the it's not just the players that we've been talking about, even though they're so important. I mean, I would never stop talking about the music of Wayne Shorter or Mm -hmm. Joe Henderson just because they're male figures. I was so influenced and have been so influenced by both of them to this day. So I would never discount that. It's just, you know, expanding anyways. Yeah. I want, I want to get deeper into your music, but I, you have, I think an interesting story of how you were raised. Were you born in Singapore? Is that right? Or you grew up in Singapore a little bit? How, how did that work? Yeah, I was born in Singapore. My parents, my dad was British and my mom is Swedish and they, my dad got a job with Westinghouse hmm. and so they moved him to Singapore and he was working for the office that was actually in Calcutta, India. So he was going back and forth to India a lot. Wow. We went to India a few times. So yeah, we traveled all over the world. My dad had that privilege, which was really wonderful. And I went to these British schools there because it was sadly that's a very colonized environment. Right. That residue is still very much present in Singapore. It's a very interesting and strange place. I that I look back upon the time and you know the interactions that certain groups of people, like British people, like my family, had with the people who actually lived on that island, lived in that place for all of time. So it's very strange and I hope things have shifted a bit. I did see something recently about Singapore on Amnesty International. I did see something about how they're trying to change the laws so there won't be any more public caning and all these kinds of things and reducing some of the marijuana laws because if you smoke or have any marijuana, you really are in jail for a while. And you can also um, your sentence can include some form of caning in or out in or outside of the incarcerated position that you're in. And it's, it's, it's insane. So yeah, there's that. And I, we were there until I was like seven and we moved to Atlanta and I lived there And this, my parents split and we moved to this neighborhood that was in the inner city of Atlanta. And so it was like a 5% white <laughs> in place and so that's where i learned about black music all my friends taught me about black music there and i i feel like learning about r&b and gospel music and rap music and all the stuff that was happening during that time in atlanta the early sort of outcast community that band and those people and it really taught me a lot about the music and 
also my friends were like, you're not black. <laughs> you can't, you know, like you'll never understand what we've gone through, but it's cool. You can hang out with us. You know, yeah. you know, it's like that. It's a good so lesson was, to learn as a young kid. <laughs> it was great. I, I mean, I loved it so much and I was so angry when my mom moved it to Texas which was harder for me because everyone made fun of me and like I was wearing all my like baggy mm-hmm. clothing and tr- you Your know inner city wear- Atlanta clothes yeah. yeah trying to wear like fubu shirts and stuff <laughs> like I can't believe what I was wearing but then everyone there was like you can't wear that and I went through sort of an identity crisis wow um, but yeah and then everyone was white so that was different so different so did me. did the music that you encountered in Singapore last with you? Is that something that you go back to ever? Like I think about Augie is seven years old now, my son, and it's like he's experienced so much musically in this time. Like I can see how these are formative years for him. Yeah, I think that he it is for people like Augie who isn't moved. I mean, we... Tr- we traveled so many places. I think I was so overwhelmed by all of the things that I've experienced. And I have that same kind of quality now where I will go to a place and I adapt so easily. Like I could just adapt within moments of being mm-hmm. in a place. And a lot of other people aren't like that, but, and I'm not saying Augie wouldn't be that way because he totally <laughs> probably would. But I'm, and what I'm saying is like, I forgot a lot of that stuff, you know, cause there was just more things to pay attention to. Yeah. So I would just like, go right inside of where I was then. So I was in Singapore and maybe most of the music we were listening to was American music. My dad, my parents, you know, they're listening to rock music and R&B and all that kind of stuff. But in school we did, in Montessori school, we did some of the bell, you know, used all these bells and it was mostly like nursery rhymes and stuff, that kind of stuff, you know. Montessori is all like project-based learning and Mm -hmm. responsibility and you have to put, you have to, you know, you have to put things back away after you use them. And it's like, that's a nice, we wanted to put our kids through Montessori. And then when we got here, it was like, there wasn't anything okay. like that. I mean, there was a small one, but they got milk and they were like, Augie's allergic to dairy, you know? And so oh, they were like, yeah. guaranteed somebody's going to spill milk in Augie's face. Guaranteed it's going to happen. And we were like, all right, well. No, nope. <laughs> not doing it. I'm sure you already provide with how awesome you and Jana are. Like, an amazing environment for Augie. You probably have your own monastery environment <laughs> in your home already. <laughs> I don't know, man. If you took a look at their playroom, you'd, uh, you might disagree. It's uh, we, we just finally cleaned it the other day. I was like, this is ridiculous. We got to throw away half of these toys. Well, hey, that's a big part of Montessori is, is just being free to do whatever you want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. And but they're no, definitely, yeah. they're definitely that. They're definitely creative and they're, you know, it's like when they're bored, it's like, here's some stuff to play with, you know, occasionally it's like, here's a phone, play some games. But for the most part, for the most part, we're keeping them, uh, creating things, you know, Yeah. I think everyone's different though. You know, like some people have really good recollections of that time and other people don't like for me, I, I don't cause I, it was, it's mostly like visual heat. I remember the heat. I remember the pool. I remember the bottom of the pool. I remember the dogs and the water and mm. screaming and like, you know, uh, swings and all of those visual kind of memories yeah. for me more so than, and then the music is really like my parents' music, what, what my parents were listening to. Right. Right. And they listened to American music. Were they listening to the yeah. Beatles and stuff like that too? Yeah. My dad, huge Beatles fan. He loved like Santana. He loved Steve Miller and yeah. 
Chicago, yeah. Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. cool. That sounds like my dad too. He's big, big into <laughs> Chicago and yeah. Uh, cool. So moved to Texas. When did you get to Chicago? Was that for school? That was, yeah, I went, well, I went to college in, um, Arlington, Texas, which is a little small school under the umbrella of UT, but it's in Arlington. So between Dallas and Fort Worth and I got a psychology degree there, but I was also connected to the music program and like played in the groups. And then I ended up getting a music degree because my advisor was like, Oh, you have a lot of music classes. You could just stay here one more year and get a music degree too. So I did that. And then I applied to graduate programs in Northwestern, accepted me to the PhD program. And I was, I was like, okay. And then I got into two other programs and I just decided to go to Northwestern. So might as well get the PhD if I'm going to go to school. And is that, was that PhD program, you applied for that right out of your undergrad? Yeah, I did. I mean, I applied to the graduate program and then they, I wasn't expecting to be accepted to, you know, the whole PhD program. It was just a sort of vague graduate program. And I was expecting yeah. them to offer me the master's but I don't even think they had that program actually a master's program yet. And the advisor there, Richard Ashley ended up being my advisor on my dissertation and they were all really excited about me and they wanted me to come there and it's like, Oh, Chicago. So we moved up there. Yeah. Is that because of your like psychology and music backgrounds? Yeah. Is that what they found interesting about your previous studies? Yeah, because it was a dedicated music cognition program where oh. people had these labs or various labs where people were studying different concepts in the field. Um, like my advisor was really interested in timing. So he was studying timing of Miles Davis solos at the time that I was applying. And then Bob Yurdigan was there and he was really interested in Partimenti, which is this um, sort of lick based way of learning uh, tunes and patterns in the baroque period of music even prior to the baroque period of music all these italians and plus mozart that's how he learned cool. um, so he wrote this old book about it's called the classic turn of phrase and it's about partimenti and he's amazing and he really helped me to understand perception and then there was elizabeth margulis who came there she she started getting interested in expectation like what does it mean when we expect something to happen in music versus then what happens when we experience the thing and we don't get what we expected. Hmm. Um, and then there's, then there was this other side of the school, the, the auditory neuroscience part where there's Nina Krauss, who's really interested in how musicians are basically creating a carbon copy of the sound that's out there in the world inside of their neurological systems inside the ear, which is really fascinating. Like if you go and record what's happening in there, inside the inner ear, it will be almost exact carbon copy. If you're a musician of what's going on out there from the most inane sounds like toothbrushing. <laughs> I remember I, one time she did a study and she was studying musicians and how they represent sound neurologically and physically in here. And the sounds she chose were like toothbrushing, um, baby crying. There was like an orgasm sound. It was yeah. crazy. And then, <laughs> so is this recollection of those sounds or it's like, while you're hearing them? Yeah. While you're hearing them, we had the cap on the whole EEG cap. Okay. You know, there's like the jelly and there's, there's EEGs on our foreheads and all over our heads. And she's studying, you know, how do we react neurologically to these sounds? What are the, what's the timing of the reaction? And then also we're rating, like how pleasurable is the sound to you? Is this pleasing on a scale of whatever to, from one to 10, 10 being the most pleasing one being 
I can't stand the sound. How pleasing is it to you? Yeah. Yeah. It was, and I still like when I hear babies cry, I still go into dad mode. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no matter yeah. where I am, I'm like, is that my kid? No, it's not. Okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like I can yeah. be by myself, yeah. but it's like, it's that innate biological response to. Right. It really is. Which is it's probably why I drive so many people crazy on planes and stuff. Cause it's like, we're wired to do something about it, you know? Right. I know. And sometimes so we don't I, get eaten by lions or something. Right. Sometimes they just need to cry it out. Well, <laughs> hard for us and everyone else on the plane. But I mean, if you're understanding, then. Yeah. 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 There's various different philosophies on cry it out too, uh, <laughs> in the parenting community. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was just talking, I was at my friend's house for dinner and they were talking about sleep training, yep. which has happened a long time ago, but they, had when they were sleep training, they moved since, but now they have a one bedroom. They had a one bedroom and they stayed in their living room so they could sleep train their baby and they slept, in there, but they did it, you know? Yeah. And they were so funny because they were thinking, like, okay, he seems to be going to sleep on his own. He's not crying. Should we go back in the bedroom? Like, when do we go back in the bedroom and put him back, you know, in the crib next to it? Like, when is the right time? And so they just waited and waited. Okay, it's definitely they're de he's definitely trained, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a crazy. We talked about doing that and we never did, and and so the boys like they still end up in our bed every night, you know. Like oh, I was talking to a friend of mine and he was like, he's like, you guys aren't going to sleep train. He's like, dude, get ready, man. He's like, they're going to be ten years old. They're still going to be in your bed, man. It's like, he's like, you better get a king size bed. I was like, oh. So we still have a queen size bed, and I just sometimes have to leave or. Jana has to leave, you know. Aww. Yeah. Oh, my and they're the very sweet though, and it's like, how long are they gonna be in the in the grand right. scheme of things? It's like it's nice to snuggle, you know. It is nice, yeah. It is totally nice. <laughs> Except when they have colds and they're like coughing in your face all night. No. <laughs> oh yeah, you're not. I mean, it's like when you're. It's like this is totally stuff I never talk about on the podcast. When you're when you're, you know, kid is sick. It's like it's, you somebody you know somebody in real life throws up it's like you run away you know what i mean and like when it's your kid you're like you're like oh you're like catching it with your hands you know i don't want it to go on my couch right it's just like right. a totally different human experience it's so good i'm glad you're talking about it i, I was saying <laughs> to my friends sometimes like people you know we need to be reminded of people's real lives sometimes when they're professional musicians like i was talking to them those same people and annoyed about how there weren't changing rooms in some of the venues you know yeah like there needs to be changing rooms in the venues for people who have babies you know absolutely you need to take their babies to the sound check I, i've been seeing that a lot lately yep. parents, just musician parents both of them and they can't afford a babysitter for the sound check so they bring the baby to the sound check and and the baby's like hanging out and where do they change their baby <laughs> Totally. Oh, and yeah. like, where do they breastfeed? And like, like Jana dealt with this. We we did a little tour uh, when Augie was a baby. Mm -hmm. And we always did this Door County run that was like a week or two long where we played almost every day. And we were like, we'll try, you know, we'll try four or five days this time. And Augie yeah. was a baby and we had him at every gig. And, you know, the band, the rest of the band would be like eating tacos on the break. And Jan is like back behind the stage, breastfeeding, taking care of Augie, making sure he's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was like not the most ideal. And I think it really kind of made her go like, I don't want to do that. 
you know it's like and it's not that she doesn't want to perform but it was like the pressure of having to both handle that and be worried about like who's watching him and are they paying attention and are they really you know handling him the way that she would want yeah uh, yeah, well, yeah. Of- I mean, luckily, I I feel that there are a lot of women like Jenna who who feel sim- there is a women in jazz jazz mothers podcast. I think that's hmm. coming out or coming out coming out or came out, um, and there are so many mothers in jazz. So I hope she's included in that too, and, and so she can tell her stories because I think it's really valuable to include people like Jenna in that kind of, in that way. So she can tell her story and other people can relate and help each other with this, with, yeah. these, with these things so that we don't just like, well, I don't, I'm just going to stop, you know, cause that's the, that's sadly what happens to some people is that they're like, I can't do this and I'm just stopping. I'm just going to dedicate, which is a beautiful thing also to dedicate your life to being a parent. But, and I know Jenna's not, I know Jenna's also like performing just as much and she's, Yep. Badass. And, but, but there's a community of people is what I'm trying to say that can help and that have resources, um, available. And I think that's so important right now. And we haven't done that in our music. We haven't done that. And they've yeah. been there all along. Jerry Allen, you know, was a mother during her performance career. There's been so many people. Yeah. Alice much- Coltrane. Alice Coltrane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad that's finally happening on, in like a very concerted way. Intentionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been you know it's tough. It's been tough for Jana, I think, uh, getting back. You know, it, it's not like she ever left, but you know, it was like such a. There was such this period where it's just like, when you're a parent of really young kids, it's like you're, you're under a rock almost, you know, and and you like a couple of years go by and you wipe your eyes and you're like, oh, wait, what happened? <laughs> who, who got elected president? What, what the hell? You know, it's oh, like yeah. it's really like you. There's so little that you can handle when especially if your kids don't sleep like our kids just never slept well you know and so we were always sleep deprived I was up at four three with the boys you know we took turns getting up with them and it's just like it was hard to maintain that energy of of forward it's like you have to always be forward thinking when you're a musician like I'm planning this tour and it's got to be planned you know months in advance or I'm planning this recording project or I'm booking this gig and it's like these things ha- they require foresight and and when you're just trying to to survive the moment it's really hard to think ahead you know what I mean yeah absolutely I mean I don't exactly I'm <laughs> but I can really I can I can see how that must be so challenging and it's so important for everyone to to talk about it because I think there's so many people who are like I can't, I can't do that but there's people that can help like you all who can show stories and share um strategies you know what i mean like yeah oh, totally you don't know how to do this this is how you do this you know <laughs> like i have no idea how to do this here you go here's a way that we did this and you can take it or leave it you know? yeah totally totally those, yeah. those stories are valuable yeah absolutely uh mm-hmm. cool i wanted to talk about about music making so we left off with with you getting your phd uh at northwestern doing all this really cool stuff i assume that you were like getting connected in the scene at that time playing like it's, it's it's it seems like you took an interesting path to becoming like a prolific artist because you we were like I majored in psychology and then they were like you you know you could major in music too you know it's like it's like that wasn't your you didn't go to school thinking like that's what I'm going to do I, I would assume so how like when did you become like I'm going to chase this artistry thing as a saxophonist and composer 
Yeah, it was when I moved to New York, actually. I got my PhD and then I was teaching a bit in Chicago for DePaul University, mm-hmm. out of music in the brain class for graduate students, a seminar class. They asked me to do that right out of, I wasn't even, I was all but, I was ABD, which means all but dissertation. Yep, yep. And um, yeah, a friend of mine, Jackie, she was teaching there and said, we need someone to teach this seminar course. Can you do it? And I was like, yeah. So I did that for many, I did that for like five years. Even after I moved to New York, I taught it on Skype before Zoom. Wow. Wow. And I also took over some theory classes for Jeff Bradfield at Columbia College. And I taught in Northwestern ear training. Um, it was a lot. So I, I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> Just being adjunct at three different universities. Whoa. Yep. Um, so I stopped doing that and I was, I really kind of went through a little thing with myself and I really wanted to write music and dedicate my life to it. So I was saving my, I saved all this money and I moved to New York. I'm like, well, if there was a place to do it, it would be here. So I did it and I moved here and I had to struggle a bit, you know, and I had these sort of odd jobs teaching music together, actually music, little baby music classes when I first moved here, which was beautiful. Um, which is when I became more sympathetic to like the plight and struggles of parenting. Cause I would, I, it was so close. I saw it and yeah. beautiful thing. Um, but then, yeah, I decided I also then went through this thing and I quit all that. And then now I just do the new school teaching thing and really spend more of my time practicing and composing. So it took a little while for me to get to this place. Um, and there's definitely not, it's not without its complications, like, most people go to school and they make all these connections and you see them kind of go through their life. And it's, it's a very linear process of being connected with those folks and they play with those folks and they're kind of connected always in this way. And I feel like I'm always kind of, you know, pushing and trying to make those connections and be like, I'm genuine, I'm here. (laughs) And sometimes I feel a little bit left out of that linear thing, but in other ways, I kind of like it because I'm kind of weaving in and out of the thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and I also have, I still have all my connections to the academic world, which is beautiful. And I'm, you know, in touch with these really interesting people, like these neuro, my friend who's a neuroscientist up here at UConn stores and just, you know, talking to him on the phone and what are you working on? And oh, I'm working on, you know, these oscillator models that, you know, mimic the behaviors of the brain. And I'm like, wow, I, I'm so lucky to be having this conversation with you. And I wouldn't have that if I just, you know, if I went to music school. So there's, you know, pros and cons. Yeah, totally. So do you then fund some of your projects through grant writing? Is, is that something that you're actively pursuing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last round with portals and then this record that isn't out yet, but will come out next year probably was funded by the Jerome foundation. We were supposed to do a bunch of touring, but pandemic. And, um, instead I made these two records and, um, and then I did some other thing. I bought some gear and it was, it was a very good grant that I received. And then this year it's been the jazz gallery offered me a fellowship to be the composer. They do this fellowship composer fellowship once a year with one person that they, the board chooses. And I was very lucky to receive that. So that's been this year of me writing for that music, which will premiere in December. Um, and then CMA, I was able to get this grant last year, which was pushed back this, this year to work with Nicole Mitchell. And we were also recording that project in December. So yeah, those have been mostly grant funded, but I do, I have funded a lot of my, a lot of my stuff myself, um, you know, tours and just 
slogging it out, like not making money on the thing and funding it or finding a patron. I think that's a very important part of the process that I think a lot of people don't talk about is mm -hmm. um, people who really love your work and who have money and who want to give their money to you so that you can do what you want to do. Yeah, <laughs> and totally. And people exist. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that in an effort to um, say, we should take advantage of people. That's not what I'm saying. It's, it's like, these people are my friends, you know, yep. and they become my friends and I become very close with them and they've supported me through the whole process. And I love them like a sister or a brother or a parent. And, and, you know, some people have money and others don't, and, yep. you know, there, there's ways in which we can, um, reach out to our fans more. And I love the way that you do that. I love the way that you are on stage with people. Like you really pull people in. Like when I watch you perform and I hear you talk to the audience, you, it's a genuine, it's not like, Hey, you know, <laughs> you guys are here listening to my music and I like really want you to, you know, give me money, but no, it's genuine. Like I really want to get to know you. I want to talk to you after the show. I want you to understand where my music's coming from. I yeah. want, I want to keep in touch with you. Yeah. Because I want our relationship to burgeon. I want our relationship to grow. And I think that's so, so important these days because, you know, everything's so, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's so much going on and we got to keep in touch with the people who care about our music and, and find our supporters. Totally. I think, and I think some of those people too, like they, they love music and maybe studied music themselves and just yeah. decided to go a different way because they wanted that financial security and now they want to have a piece of somebody creating art, you know, that they yeah. love. I think yeah. that's a beautiful thing. I, I work with somebody in Minneapolis like this um, and I put on a show like a, a album release party at, at the at a theater in, in South Minneapolis with my orchestra and I had like a four piece choir and I flew in Toki Wright from Boston and I flew a, a hard gender in from Jamaica mm -hmm. um, to play with my band and I had like a you know I had a videographer and a photographer and a lights guy and a sound guy wow. and it was like you know we sold it was like $35 tickets or something we sold 315 330 tickets something like that uh, but I still after all of that would have lost money if I hadn't had this guy Tim Pharisee who's uh, been a fan of my music for a long time who paid for the flights for the two guest artists to fly in and seated the show with a thousand dollars. It's like, I still yeah. would have not made it even with the success of like nearly selling out this theater at $35 a ticket, which is like, yeah. it's kind of mind blowing. It's like, man, I still didn't get there. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's a 20 piece band of course. So like my, right. I always like my, the projects I come up with are too big probably. So it's like, you, no. but you need somebody <laughs> like that to, and I was going to ask too about portals. Like, when you when you started to think about funding that project, how did you frame it when you wrote the grant? Like, what what were you? Did you tell a story about the inspiration behind the music? Did you talk about how you wanted to include strings and you hadn't done that before? Like, what? Or I don't know if you hadn't done that before, but that you wanted to include strings with your quintet. Did how did you frame that in the grant writing process? Yeah, I basically wanted to talk through how we connect with our ancestors in the music and they can be people who were related to you by dna or they can be people who were inspired by you and i thought about that word portal and how we can create these portals of communication with those people not like the portal that you use to go online 
mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and the other portal the, the sort of like um yeah the portal of 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 communicating with our ancestors and i spoke about that and how it was so important to me to be able to do that in order to define my own identity and where i came from and to tell that story of my own uniqueness and i mean more more formally and specifically i wanted to hire string string players who were really wonderful improvisers instead of just a section and not saying people in section can't improvise but i i wanted to put the section together myself mm-hmm. and choose the people who i really loved to forego some of the technical prowess for expression and and not not that expression doesn't require technical prowess but <laughs> i wanted more more focus on the improvising um right, right, and more right. focus on the texture of the strings and trying to do this a different way and I, although i love you know charlie parker with strings and all these musicians with strings i love all those records so much it wasn't what i was trying to do and so i wanted to incorporate this texture in a new way and i explained that um to in my proposal yeah mm-hmm. and now you've worked with marquise on a couple of records two more than two yeah, too. And this will be, um, we're recording in December, so it'll be the third one. Mm-hmm. So it, fe- it feels to me like your chemistry is palpable, kind of jumping off the record. Can you talk about developing that relationship with Marquis? Did you guys meet when you were both in Chicago? Is he in New York now, too? He, yeah, we met in Chicago, and he's, Marquis is an enigma. He moves around so much, but also, you, as you may know, he has a position at Berkeley College of Music. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. But yeah, he has a position at Berkeley College of Music, which is, I think he's starting his second year just cool. now, this new semester, um, trumpet faculty. And so I believe Marquis, I wouldn't want to tell his story for him, but I'm pretty sure he has a place in Boston and then he might have a place here. And he also owns a place in Chicago for sure. Okay. And um, so he he's traveling around a lot, as we all know. And yeah, I mean, I always love Marquise, who has a trump. You also have an incredible trumpet sound that is unparalleled. Like both of you, it's just, wow. Just to be able to have that, um, yeah, that subtone quality that I feel like I'm always with, that textural depth yeah. that is, I think it's just so difficult on the trumpet, but like easier on this flugelhorn maybe, but, but you both get it so beautifully on the trumpet. And I had played with him a little bit in some projects in Chicago and just got to know him and really love him as a person, which I think is also very important to me to be involved with him as a person, as a human being Right. and wanted to work with him. And he's, yeah, he's just so such a wonderful presence all around so and i love playing with him i love improvising with him and working on playing together which i know he really loves to do improvising together that's been really fun i do that a lot on that um that record with him the heart tonic record yeah yeah Yeah. cool portals i've been listening to portals a bunch lately and it's 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 awesome i don't even know how to put it i was thinking about like what can i say about it that actually (laughs) has substance but i don't even know it's just like that's the stuff that I love, you know. It's like I hear it, and it's just like, you know, it's like the stars. I don't know how to describe it, you know. It's like listening to it. It's like I always picture things when I listen to music too, so I just like visually see the music while I'm listening, in a, in different ways, or hear conversations. I used to fall asleep listening to like Roy Hargrove trade fours with with Antonio Hart, you know, and like mm-hmm. I would hear I could like as I was falling asleep, I 
I'd be hearing a conversation in words. Yeah. Rather than, you know what I mean? So it's just like, I have that, I have that experience listening to your music, uh, Thanks. and whatever. So I don't know how to, that means a lot. Not to gush too much, you know. No, I'm really, wearing my My Tree T-shirt too. It truly means so much to to even just know that people are listening and getting something out of it, you know. That's yeah, yeah, the, totally. It's all any artist really can ask for. It's like that's a good reminder too to artists to go like, oh yeah, this does mean something to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I think it's easy to lose sight of that. Definitely, because music is such a personal endeavor where we like we'll go and listen on our headphones and no one is there with us and how how can we possibly share that with someone else and many people just don't share i'm i'm not i haven't been good about sharing that but i'm getting better like i listened to a friend's record the other day and i texted him you know i'm like finally sat down and listened to your whole record and it's fucking awesome <laughs> you know <laughs> so i think we should all be so much better about that i think there's there can be sometimes a complex as a musician to be like, well, you know, I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing. And like, I mean, we're all out here doing, trying to do this thing yep. <laughs> and it's so small, you know, like this yep. stuff is so little and every time you reach out and just say something like that, it's, it can help change someone's day, you know, which is that totally. sort of thing is like, we just wake up every day and we go, okay, okay today what what do i gotta do today to get through today about that right now and i'm not trying to change the world i just want to like be able to put my shoes on and like feel calm and make people smile and have a good energy around me yeah totally so what would you say uh to like if there's a young person that wants to make um you know a new album of music maybe somebody that hasn't done it before what kind of advice would you give a person like that um yeah i would say i think it for me it took a long it take, always takes a long time to frame what i'm doing and to take a lot of notes i'm very intentional about sort of taking stock of all of the pieces that that are going into the concept of an album and or a concept of a book of music and how everything sort of fits together in these specific ways. So I'm really interested in the shape of it. And sometimes I will draw visually what I'm going for or take a lot of notes. It's a lot of free form note taking and drawing and colors and textures and what is it going to feel like and what how do i want people to feel when they're listening to the music and where where are their minds going to go and like just putting myself in other people's shoes and that kind of building for me and then going and sitting down and figuring out harmonically and rhythmically what so i'm how do. long is that process that initial process does that last a week where you're like i'm going to ruminate on this is it longer is it like you're thinking about it and then you're actually actively writing things out or right i feel like yeah it's a back and forth for me but it takes a lot like right now this thing that i'm doing portals number two with for my grandmother's poetry this one i'm working on now it's been taking a long time like over a year year or a year and a half or something like that for me because it's this has been difficult this is the first time i'm gonna include more words and singing on like the record that I, i would say is more of my jazz jazz style record and so I'm really trying to be you know more intentional or intentional about the whole thing and there's going to be poetry and there's going to be like rapping and spoken word so there's all of that that's taking me a long time to go in there and do yeah. that and yeah. 
Yeah. It's just music is, has become something so different now for people. And I'm saying that because I've noticed just more specifically, there's shorter tracks, for example, like mm -hmm. smaller tracks. And I'm used to, you know, like 13 minute tracks. And then someone wrote on, on Twitter the other day, like whoever's coming out with tracks that are 13 minutes or 12 minutes, like you don't know what you're doing anymore. And I had this long discussion. This wasn't the other day. This was like maybe six months ago, mm. but I was like, wow, this is so, everything is so different. And, but then, you know, you could be hold strong and do your thing. I'm like, no, I'm going to come up with a track that's 12 minutes. But then you think, well, who, who are the people who will listen to that? And, but there are people who will listen to that. So you kind of go back and forth and think yep. about shaping and everything. But I'm well, you know, think about like when the records came out and it became like, all right, you got to make your song under three minutes and 20 seconds or whatever. And it's like, did Duke Ellington not make art because he was making songs that were three minutes and 20 seconds? I mean, like, no. I do, I do think that too. My songs are all like all my big band charts are 12 minutes long, you know? No, I know. 15 but minutes yeah. long. It's like, yeah. In the age of streaming though, it, it, I do think about this a little bit. Like, yeah. How, how can I maximize do I break up my songs into chunks so people it's like so I can get more plays? You know, I don't know. It's right. Like, I know. You don't you don't really know how people are ingesting the music and and a lot of people in the in the mainstream world are really just listening to singles. They're not even listening to albums, you know. Yeah. I mean I, I agree with you. I, 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 that's the perception of what's happening. But when I talk to young people, a lot of young people are like no man i'm listening to albums albums that's you know what i mean like it does make me feel like okay we're gonna be all right you know it's like I there's love, still people that are digging it i love hearing that because i am that person too i mean i will sit and listen to a record you know yeah, many yeah. times yeah. and i'm not i'm not normally a single person and the only time i really listen to singles is when my friends came up with singles come out with singles and i'm like okay i don't listen to the single and yeah but it's not normal for me to listen to a single <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was I, just listening to Katie, uh, Katie Ernst and Dustin Lorenzi are they have like an indie project now, kind of like yeah, rock it's so good. And I, I just listened to, to their single that mm -hmm. was released ahead of the record. Uh, but yeah, same thing. I'm like, I'm majority of the time I'm I listen to a whole album, and it's just like, I don't know. That's how I trained myself to listen, I guess. But multiple times through before yeah. moving on to the next, I've been listening. I'm honestly like. For me, I'm 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 now in the gym five days a week in the mornings, real early before the kids wake up, and it's been uh, Jesse Volume Three, the Jacob Collier record, which is just outrageously cool. That's awesome. And it's over and over and over every morning, and I'm like, I know yeah. this is gonna get into my music somehow, you know. It's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I'm with you on the album listening. I was just disappointed to see someone tweet that out and like people be like yeah that's true and i was like yeah. oh, what are you doing yeah. i mean it depends it's like what are you trying to do what are you trying to accomplish are you are you somebody who is trying to really play the spotify game and like build up a whole bunch of followers and get mm -hmm. millions of plays per year so that you have some passive income it's like if that's your goal then like yeah i mean you should do what works there and there's a place for that and place for music for function and you know but if like if you're an artist and you're and you're gonna be true to the things that you're drawn to it's like you can't play by those rules uh, mm -hmm. and I, I i see both sides of that um yeah. not to both sides ism everything but i see I, I can see you know yeah i think the most important thing is to be true to yourself and your vision what you hear and how you hear music and how you experience music and put it out like that and don't falter, you know, because yeah. someone's going to someone's going to like it. And some, more more often than not, 
a lot of people are going to like it. A lot of people are going to dig it if it's genuine and it's coming from your straight from your heart and from the vision that you've cultivated for the years that you've been doing something, even if it's different than your norm, you know, because I I tend to do that. I'll put out a project and it's very different from the other stuff that I have out. Um, Although some people have been telling me lately, like, oh, I can always tell it's your music, which is really cool to hear. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm one of those people who like has these, you know, three different projects going on and I'm switching back and forth between them all. Yeah. I love that. I, I'm doing that too myself and yeah, I've always been drawn to these other kinds of things. And now I've, I say this a lot now on the podcast to every, basically everybody I talk to, because part of like, I, I'm talking to a lot of people that are doing that, that, that have these different things and they've found a way to kind of put them together and turn them into something that's really potent. And yeah, that is kind of like encompassing your wholeness as an artist, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because honestly is- with how small our industry is, what else can we do? You know, we can't rely on the one thing, you know, yeah. and that's why I think it's important to be flexible as an artist because you know, we're out here hustling. If someone asks you, can you play on this pop record? Maybe it's in it in your best interest to learn how to do that or yeah. to put some energy into it, even though it's, you know, not your, you know, main thing, mm-hmm. but maybe all these things are your main thing. And, yeah. it, and it's not It's like, can you play, you know, an open solo over this you know, collection of noise. Yeah, I can, you know, I've worked on that, you know, it's my main thing, just like playing over these changes is my thing, or just like playing, singing over this song that I wrote is my thing. So yeah, I'm so tired. I'm kind of tired of people being like, well, you have to choose one thing and follow, follow that. And I'm like, well, those are all my one thing. (laughs) That's my thing. The one thing that I do. That's me. (laughs) Doing the music that I'm drawn to is my one thing. Yeah, exactly. Whatever that is. Yeah, because honestly, you know, how do you make a li- how you make a living is all of those things. That's how you make a living doing this thing. Yeah. It's, unless you're really a mega mega name. Right. You know? And you may find too that you're that you end up loving some of that stuff and that yes. that you get a lot out of it. Yeah. And that it informs the other music you make eventually. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. It's certainly absolutely. been my experience. Mhm. So yeah, you said so- Sorry. So, no, I was just going to say one more thing is there's a lot of jazz musicians who end up playing for pop musicians and going on yep. these world tours. And it's so cool to see that because yeah. when you, I don't know, jazz music is so hard. And so learning this music takes a lot of energy and focus. And I think we work quickly. So when someone hires you in that context and you already have all the stuff memorized and have all of your horn lines figured out and you don't need any sheet music, it's because of the training we had doing all this other stuff like, Oh yeah, I memorized this cliff, you know, Clifford Brown solo. I can do this. I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you, uh, mentioned that you've got a portals volume two coming out. Um, is there anything else we should be keeping our eye out for? We're going to link all your stuff in the show notes for people that are listening. Oh, thanks. I'm coming out with a record next year sometime, which will be, I have this band, this project called Alula, which is sort of my more electronic world of music and still um, still instrumental music. But that record will feature myself and Chris Tordini on bass and Val Jonti on turntables and samples cool. and Taishan Sori on drums. Oh, yeah. And then 
my friend Kasim Nakvi, who's an incredible musician and composer himself, but he's playing modular synth on two of the songs. And he's also an amazing drummer and just an incredible human being and composer and everything. Hmm. Um, and I met him actually through sort of, we were label mates on New Amsterdam Records. So we met that way and now have played a lot of, a few shows together and he plays drums in those shows. But anyway, yeah, that'll come out next year and that'll be like an Alula, the second Alula album. And that record is focused on people who have been held in captivity and who persevered in these like very wildly successful ways, like Galileo, for example. Mm -hmm. um, these two women who were burned at the stake uh, in the 13th century, whose names were Agnes and Huguet, they were French. And my friend Keith Lamar, who's on death row right now in the state of Ohio, who right. involved with his campaign and um, trying to, you know, free him from this ridiculous incarceration. And um, mm -hmm. another friend of mine, Jaleel Muntakim, who was an ex-Black Panther who was in prison for almost almost 50 years, maybe 48 years, was released in 2020 um, wow. and is now just doing his thing. And he's written so many books and just kind of a hero of mine. Uh, Sandra Bland and um, mm. Joyce Ann Brown, who was a woman who was incarcerated for some time, but then she created these programs. She's passed now, but she created these programs for people in the West Coast who who were, you know, out of jail and needed help out, you know, in the real in the world. Yep. Because that's been such a horrible thing for people to experience. And she was a hero of mine for doing that. So that's the sort of aspect of the album for me. I've been really involved with that idea of helping incarcerated people personally my my uncle was incarcerated for a long time mm -hmm. and um he lives in sweden and i've just seen he's an amazing person and human being but i've seen how the system sort of destroyed his life and i thought i would love to do something personally that makes a statement about this aspect of my personal life yeah beautiful yeah Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking out the time to talk and hang. Uh, it's great to catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. Hope we uh, cross paths again soon. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. <laughs>